The Navy's International Programs Office is one of its lesser-known components. It helps build maritime security and development partnerships. Recently, NIPO got a new executive director, and Carla Horn joins me now. Ms. Horn, good to have you with us. Great. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. And let's start with the Navy International Programs Office itself. It's not a very descriptive title. What exactly does NIPO do? So International Programs uh, includes a lot of different activities including our international security assistance programs, where we're working individually with countries to provide them assistance, cooperative development programs, where we cooperate with another country, and then technology security policy, where we review the release of our technology in the U.S. to other partners. So all three of those are kind of big moving parts, and the organization is led by Admiral Tony Rossi and myself. So a lot of moving parts there. Wow. And I guess a lot of this is predicated on the fact that, you know, let's face it, the U.S. Navy is probably the most capable pretty much on, on Earth, right? Well, we like to think so, yes, but uh, we can't do it alone, and we need our partners. And having the interoperability with those partners is really important, and, and that's where these these sales and these cooperative agreements come into play. Right. And, uh, for example, let's talk about Taiwan to the extent that you can. You know, we are changing the posture of the United States. The government is at the moment in Taiwan for various reasons. So that would involve the Navy. What form would that kind of help and cooperation typically take? So the foreign military sales, absolutely, and different security assistance. So we're working with them on equipment that they need and ways that we can support them through our partnerships, and then we'll continue to provide support after. That's one of the beauties of the the sale, where we sell them the equipment, and then we continue on with parts and training and exercises, and it really builds a long-term relationship. So, for example, and I'm just making this up, but would this be the type of thing, suppose a country acquires or builds its own destroyer, a certain class of ship, there's a lot of experience needed and know-how and maintenance issues to operate a destroyer effectively. So the United States in that case might give transfer its know-how to a friendly or allied nation, and here's how the best way to maintain and operate a destroyer. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, some of the equipment that we have sold to multiple countries, there's even like a user group where we can exchange information amongst different countries along with the U.S., but also just back to your destroyer question, whether they built the equipment themselves in their own country, they may come to us later for follow-on training and other types of partnerships. And by the way, is the number of nations that have carriers growing? Not that I know of, but I wouldn't say... I can really comment further on growth of carriers. Yeah, but I guess if you have a carrier, I mean, it takes hundreds of man years, of person years, to just to understand how to maintain and operate a catapult, let alone the rest of the carrier. Yes. Well, even here in the U.S., it takes us, you know, 10 plus years to to build a carrier. And especially with the the most recent class, all the modern technologies that we put into that class is uh, just magnificent. So, yeah. yeah, it definitely takes a lot of a lot of time and a lot of effort. And just briefly, how many billets are in NIPO? I imagine it's a combination of uniforms and civilians, as we're seeing this yeah. morning. Yeah, yeah, it's a combination. We have about 240 people total, um, and that includes approximately 40 military, 
Uh, we have a number of contracting support, and then the rest is all civilians. And our civilians are certified professionals. We have a number of certification programs for security cooperation, acquisition, financial management. We have a lot of expertise here on our staff. We're speaking with Carla Horn. She's the newly appointed executive director of the Navy International Programs Office, NIPO. I guess you've been there just a couple of months now. And you came from NAVSEA, where you were the comptroller. So you're kind of a financial background person. Yes. So the, the beauty of financial management is everybody needs money. So when you work in financial management, you get to learn a little bit about a lot of things. And the same goes here with our international partners. There are all different funding sources that we use to, whether it's a country bringing their own money to the table or us working very closely with the State Department, um, because security cooperation is part of the U.S. foreign policy and run by the State Department. So we work very closely with them on utilization of their funding to support partnerships. And then we have U.S. appropriated dollars that are used to support partners, for example, Ukraine. So there are all different funding sources. So that financial background actually comes in handy. And what are some of the differences you found from being, say, the comptroller of a very large organization like NAVSI and now running a relatively small one like NIPO? In my past experiences between working in small organizations and then even when I went to NAVSI, um, as I told people, if you're a financial person, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars or a billion dollars, you focus on doing the right thing, following the rules, finding solutions. And to me, it, the dollar amount is, is just wherever you sit. So Sure. And getting back to NIPO itself, just tell us where in the hierarchy of the Department of the Navy that it sits. So NIPO is it's a collection of acquisition professionals. So we actually report directly to the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition, ASNRDA. So we are part of the acquisition community, and we work directly with the acquisition organizations of the Navy. So NAVC, NAVWAR, NAVAIR, um, those are the organizations that are actually implementing the cases with the foreign partners because oftentimes what the foreign partners want to buy are things that we're already buying here in the U.S. So we partner the country with the program office in the Navy that's already buying that. Now, sometimes a partner may come and ask for something that we're not currently buying for ourselves. And so we call that a non-program of record, and we do our best to support the partner. And you know, they, they pay for it, and, and again, we try to create those relationships and provide them what they need. And does that also include maybe transferring expertise to those other nations in the art of procurement itself? Because the United States has a very well-developed procurement system based on certain principles that aren't necessarily extant in every country in the world. I wouldn't necessarily say that we are training them to do their own procurements. There are exceptions to that, of course. Like, so, for example, in Afghanistan and Iraq, we tried to train the Afghans and the Iraqis to support themselves, right, to support their military and their police. And we tried to show them how we do it in the U.S., how we plan, how we program our dollars, and how we look for sustainment processes across the years. We, we tried to do that with Afghanistan and Iraq. In terms of a lot of our partners that we have today – 
we enjoy having that relationship where they buy the item from us, they buy the same you know type of equipment that we have here in the U.S., and then we work together in exercises and interoperability, and so that's kind of the ideal for us. And when it comes to technologies that cannot be exported, there's a large federal apparatus outside of the Navy that determines export controls and so forth. So there must be an intra-governmental activity that you get involved with also? Yes. So you hit the nail on the head, right? There's, There's laws, there's policies, there's various organizations, there are uh, boards. So it's, it is definitely a wide range of, of involvement when determinations are made on releases of technology. And so we have an organization here in our office. We also have experts across the Navy who make recommendations. And like I said, there's often board reviews for these types of release. And, and again, coordinating across the services and with the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. And just to wrap up again with uh, Carla Horn herself, you're a lifetime Navy person or federal senior executive person. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So mostly ni- lifetime Navy. I actually started out as an intern with the Navy when I was in graduate school in Indiana State. And uh, I remember my director of my political science department suggested I go to Washington, D.C. for an internship. And I'm from a small town of 1,200, so I couldn't imagine moving to Washington, D.C. and the whole experience. And uh, once I got here, I never left. I loved it. I worked at the Pentagon for 20 years and um, really enjoyed that experience and spent most of my time with the Navy, but have worked. I worked in the Secretary of Defense's office which is when I worked very closely with the Army on Afghanistan. And I had a great opportunity to work at U.S. Southern Command down in Miami. And that was a really eye-opening international experience for me to be partnering with Central and South American and Caribbean countries on everything from humanitarian assistance to disaster relief to um, drug interdiction. And so lots of interesting projects there that kind of piqued my interest over 20 years ago to end up here at NIPO. So I feel very fortunate. And where the whole town could fit in one hallway of where you've worked. Exactly. Carla Horn is Executive Director of the Navy International Programs Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted 
the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, 
for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, 
it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.